This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Anyone wondering what the Democrats need to do to win the pivotal heartland states in this country would do well to consult Sherrod. Last year, last year he was elected to his third Senate term with a six percentage point margin over his Republican opponent, the only major Democrat at the time to win a statewide seat in Ohio. He's generally considered among the more liberal members of the Senate, but also has demonstrated an ability to connect with working class voters across Ohio. One of his favorite phrases is the, the dignity of work, by which he means the belief that hard work should pay off for everyone. The New York Times, in a profile of Sherrod last year, said he projects, quote, a grizzled authenticity <laughs> that endears his brand of progressivism to even some conservative voters. And in fact, Sherrod frequently is mentioned as someone who could bridge the progressive and establishment camps in the Democratic Party. After his reelection in Ohio last year, he was urged by many to run for president in 2020, and he did give the idea serious thought before taking himself out of consideration in March this year. Uh, hey, it's, it's not too late to reconsider, sir. <laughs> now, Sherrod has written two previous books. Um, I think he spoke for one of them, one of them here uh, a decade or so ago. Uh, one of the books was Congress from the Inside about the inner workings of the Hill and myths, uh, myths of free trade on the failures of, of U.S. trade policy. Uh, his new work, Desk 88, offers a sort of, of history of, of 20th century American progressivism told through profiles of eight members of Congress who previously sat at the same desk that Sherrod now occupies on the Senate floor, desk 88. The profiles are mixed with Sherrod's reflections on his own experiences and thoughts about issues dear to him. It's a really engaging and insightful book, uh, and one that reminds us that there's still much more to do for progressives working for equality and opportunity. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the most accomplished politician from Yale's class of 1974, <laughs> Sherrod Brown. Thanks. Okay. I um. What? What? I. The, what was the word you just used? You used the term grizzled. And Con, <laughs> Connie. Connie. My wife, Connie Schultz. By the way, many of you know Connie and love Connie. And the um. Connie and I were taking the train from New York. We did we did last night. We did the Colbert. And this is really our first real book signing like this. So thank you for. I know these slots are are rarely given and difficult to get at, at Politics and Prose. And, but Connie and I were, we were she was reading something where um, my voice was described as an idling diesel engine, <laughs> which I was kind of taken by that. I thought some people really can write. Um, one did I'll talk about the book. But one one thing when. Brad mentioned our time in college together. Um, I announced for con for the legislature in January, my senior year, and we did a, we did one fundraiser in the Yale campus, and I we roped off a corner of the dining hall, and we allowed anybody to sit there who had already paid for their meal through their meal ticket, and we charged a dollar, and we raised fifty four dollars with no overhead, <laughs> and I'm still uh, Kim and Josh and people do our fundraising. We're still trying to figure that out. So, um, but again, thank you. And I'll, I'll talk for 15, 20, 25 minutes and I wanna take your questions. And as I said, I'm not, this will be my first book signing like this for this book. And um, I'm th just absolutely thrilled that so many of you are here. And um, I'd like to introduce Gail Ross, who's my agent. And Gail is this book would, she was told me that senators actually could write and convince me and thank you. And my brother Bob is here who lives in Cleveland, but Bob is somewhere in the back. Um, so Bob, thanks for coming too. And, um, the idea for came, well, my, my first month in the Senate uh, was January 2007, and much of what, what's that? Charlie's oh, Charlie, oh, Charlie's here. Charlie? I'm sorry, I didn't know Charlie. Charlie lives here. And, Maybe Charlie is. Charlie's also my brother, I'm sorry. 
You wonder, you wonder our parents, Char Charlie Brown, Bob Brown, and Sherrod Brown? I mean, I, I don't understand that. Anyway, but, and, and I think, is Ann here? Did I hear Ann's voice? And Charlie, Charlie became, now, congratulations to Nationals fans, first of all. And I know, you, I know you'd probably shown up in larger numbers if Sean Doolittle had been speaking tonight, if you get my drift there. But Char Charlie, Charlie um, moved to Washington and gave up his, his loyalty to the Cleveland Indians and as a Nationals fan. But uh, back a few years ago, I met Ken Burns. And Ken Burns was, um, had done one of, his incredible uh, one of his incredible films on baseball. And I saw Ken Burns in a cafeteria thing in the Longworth cafeteria, and he uh, doing a thing about the about his exhibit an exhibit about his show, and he had a he had a baseball hat on. It's it was a Boston hat, and I said I said you I thought you grew up in Detroit. He said I did. I said aren't you a Tigers fan? He said I was, and then I moved to Boston. I said so you moved to Republican neighborhood. You become a Republican. <laughs> so anyway, okay, let's go back to the book. Okay, enough. Two thousand seven. First, first month in office, uh, one of the things, much of the beginning of your time in the Senate and the House is by seniority. So you choose your office by seniority, you choose your desk on the Senate floor by seniority. I never really knew anything about this except that a senator had told me that senators will carve their names in the bottom of their desk drawers. So I realize there's no really bad seats on the Senate floor. You're not sitting behind a post at old RFK Stadium. You've got good seats. So... Um, I started looking in the desk drawers, and the fourth drawer I looked at, I saw McGovern, South Dakota, Gore, Senior, Tennessee, uh, Hugo Black, Alabama, and then it just said Kennedy. And so I, 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 Ted was about four seats away. I said, Ted, come here a second, would you? And he comes over, and I said, which brother's desk is this? He, said, he looked at it, he said, well, it's got to be Bobby's. I have Jack's desk. So that was my introduction to Desk 88. All the desks are numbered. No senator knows what the number on her desk or his desk is. It's a little carving in the bottom. You didn't know that, did you? Did you know where it is? So a number of you have worked in the Senate here and, and know this stuff. Um, so I chose this desk, and I just began to think about the sort of the, the – the, well, the, I chose this desk and started thinking about 150 books later. I read about 155 or 60 books, mostly in total, to, 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 to research this about senators, about the time – uh, even a book by Tolstoy that gave me some ideas about how to write this, about some things in this book. Uh, I interviewed about 100 people, some former senators, some staff, some people that just would have interest in this. And 10 years later, the book came, and it, it was a long, long project. It would have been done after about three years. I thought I had finished the first draft, and I showed it to Connie, who is a terrific writer, as you know, and I showed it to my brother, Bob, and they both said, there's, there's just not nearly enough here. You don't have yourself in this book. Anybody could have written about these eight senators. So I went back to the drawing board and, and, and worked on this on and off for a period of years and, and came up with Desk 88. And I, it's, I wrote it for the same reason as I wear this lapel pin. This lapel pin I've worn since um, I was at a Workers' Memorial Day rally in Lorraine, a city, Tony Morrison's hometown, I might add, west of Cleveland on Lake Erie. And... This is a pen printed up by the steelworkers. It's a depiction of a canary in a birdcage. And if you know labor history, you know workers, worker, if the canary died, workers got out of the mines. They had no union strong enough or government that cared enough in 1900 to protect them. And so this pen represents what the purpose of my writing this book is, and that is that, that um, the power of, I believe, the power of government can make people's lives better, pure and simple. And that's what progressives are, and that's what we do. So, as uh, um, I've, um, I, uh, growing up as the son of a doctor and a teacher and a, a teacher, a southern, southern woman teacher from the north, from the south, a woman, I didn't say that right, growing up the son of a doctor and our mother was a teacher um, that grew up in Georgia, in a small town in Georgia. Um, you, people sometimes say, how did you get this politics? How did you become a labor Democrat? Why do you think this way? And I, I want to read two passages, one about my mother and one about my first year in the legislature when I spent a lot of time in union halls. And I'll, I'll read, these, I'll read a, several paragraphs from each. Like Hugo Black, my mother was a child of the segregated South. Born almost 100 years ago in a small town of maybe 400 people, she at a young age found segregation in its white privilege, first confusing, then confounding, then repugnant. 
No issue informed my mother as much as race. While the busing controversy raged in the 1960s in the national media, my mother talked of a different kind of forced busing, the forced busing of her childhood in the segregated South. Black children were bused past a new all-white school to attend a distant, underfunded black school. Separate but equal, they said. Black children were given books that were tattered and dated after being discarded by white schools, if the black children were provided any books at all. My mother, now middle-aged, organized interracial dialogues at a local at our area high school and junior high to encourage students who went to school together to actually talk to each other and share their stories. She told us about her childhood, about race and class and privilege, and how she and her sisters, even though they were middle class at best, enjoyed far more privilege and opportunity than any black child born in Newton County, Georgia. She taught my brothers and me always to address older black men and women with their honorific titles. Mrs. Rogers, Mr. Fields, Mrs. Christian. She had seen far too many white children in rural Georgia called older, call older black men Jimmy and Johnny and older black women Betty and Hattie Lou. To this day, as a tribute to my mother and because of her teachings, I ask older African Americans, regardless of their professions, their last name and address them Mr. or Miss. My mother knew next to nothing about unions after all, her parents were farmers and her husband was a physician. But she intuitively understood that people banding together could enhance their collective power, raise their standard of living, and demand justice. And she saw trade unionists, unionists people like the United Auto Workers Walter Ruther in the Brotherhood of Car Sleeping Porters, Sleeping Car Porters, A. Philip Randolph, standing alongside and marching with civil rights heroes. And that was the, that's the cause she cared most about. She knew that Dr. King was martyred in Memphis advocating for exploited sanitation workers. Her unrelenting activism continued. 2004, dissatisfied with the grassroots of the Kerry presidential campaign, she recruited a friend, loaded a card table and two folding chairs into her trunk and drove to the poorest parts of Mansfield where she sat day after day in front of grocery stores registering voters. Within a month, the two of them registered more than 900 voters. She kept the names and phone numbers. She was now 84, keep in mind. Kept the names and phone numbers of the new voters and called them on election day to make sure they vote. At the age of 87, this shy white girl from the segregated South was the first in my family to go to work to volunteer to elect the first African-American president. months before the Ohio Democratic primary. January 20th, 2009 was the last day she got out of bed and sat up to watch television. Sitting with my oldest brother, Bob, she had sent Connie and me to Washington and said, you go to the inauguration. Seeing history made. She died two weeks after the inauguration, watching Barack Obama take the oath of office was the last good day of her life. Now, the other reading I want to do is about my labor education, if you will. Early in my first term in the Ohio House of Representatives, I was 22, the legislature had adjourned on a Thursday night. With no votes and no committee hearings Friday, I headed home to my district in Richland County an hour drive north. With no scheduled appointments, I drove across town to United Auto Workers Hall. Their members had always made me feel guilty, feel, feel, feel guilty, feel welcome. Although, I don't know why I said that. Where'd that come from? Maybe that too. All right, this privileged kid of doctors, they made me feel guilty too. I don't know where that came from. That is not on this page. Although they had endorsed my candidacy the year before and I had many times met with and talked to the union's officers and activists, I didn't really know them. I didn't know their personal stories. And even though I'd, given, I, even though I'd gone to high school with their sons and daughters, I didn't know much about their lives. Thus began my political education. At UAW Local 169 and at the UAW Local 549, I learned about the history of trade unionism. I learned how union workers made steel and how they built cars. I learned that strikes are always an act of back-against-the-wall desperation because workers never make up for the wages lost no matter how good the contract and how briefly they are on the picket line. And I learned that to a trade unionist, Strike breakers, scabs, are the lowest form of human life. Few of these workers, white and black, expected to have the opportunity that this doctor's kid had. 
but they understood intuitively, I would say, that their high school daughter, their son at John Sherman High School, John Sherman Junior High, could have more than they did. Their challenge to grasp the American dream and launch their children upward was more difficult than it was for my parents. Many things could go wrong for them, a layoff, a strike, a workplace injury, an illness in the family, each with more devastating consequences than life deals a more affluent white family. And of course, African-American workers had greater challenges because of decades of discrimination. I learned about luck, where you were born, how much education and income your parents had, what neighborhood you lived in, and what school you attended. I understood how much good luck I had and how little some of these workers had. And, while, and they told me what they read, books and articles and newspapers, stories about strikes and heroes of the labor movement. Over the years, I came to realize that the best books about workers and their unending struggle for dignity and a decent standard of living were novels. Wallace Stegner's Joe Hill, Emile Zola's Hermenau, Pietro de Donato's Christ in Concrete, and John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. Now this book is about eight United States senators, understanding all white, all male, everybody that ever held my desk, to my knowledge, was a man. Uh, that's what the Senate looked like in those days, as you know. Uh, and I expect if someone stands in front of you or someone in this bookstore 100 years from now after eight other senators, there will be more women, there will be people of color, as I've, as I've written about in this book. Uh, and I, um, I, I, that, that, that tells me a lot about sort of where, where we need to go in this country. I'll talk for a moment about each of the eight senators. I want to focus on the first one I wrote about who came to the Senate in 1926 named Hugo Black. But I'll start with the most recent, George McGovern. Uh, Senator McGovern was the only one of the eight that I knew. I met him. I never met any of the other seven. I saw Senator Proxmire from a distance. I didn't hang around much in this city until I was elected into the House 25 years ago. But um, Senator, Senator McGovern uh, told me a number of stories when I sat and talked to him. One of his favorites was, um, he, was he went up to Barry Goldwater, and Barry Goldwater had suffered a rather... Um, uh, a rather humiliating defeat, as you know. And he had a conversation he recalled, he recounted with Walter Mondale. And Mondale, as you know, in 1984, won one state, his own, in the District of Columbia. Twelve years earlier, McGovern won one state, Massachusetts, in the District of Columbia. And um, thank you, D.C., for that. And uh, Mondale went up to McGovern a couple years after the 1984 shellacking. He said, George, when do you get over this? How long does it take? And McGovern said, I'll let you know. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny, but it really isn't if you're they. And I, I'm not sure you ever, you ever erase that scar. But so one day in 1971, McGovern is talking to, um, to Barry Goldwater, and he says, Barry, tell me, they're both senators at the time, and this was a year before McGovern's, McGovern's loss. And he said, Barry, tell me what it's like to run for president. Give me some advice. And they had a good conversation. And as McGovern recounted to me, then said to Goldwater, some of you remember very few of you might remember the times, but certainly some of you remember the stories. Goldwater, about two weeks before the election in, in Tampa or St. Pete's, Goldwater came out against Social Security, actually campaigned against Social Security. And the people that have been on congressional staffs will particularly appreciate the story. So McGovern, so McGovern said, well, Barry, I've always wanted to know, why, did you, why in the world did you come against, out against Social Security that close to the election and do it in Florida? And Goldwater said, you know, you know, George, I knew I was going to lose. It was two weeks before the election or week before. He said, I knew I was going to lose. I knew everything was going wrong. My staff, all about half my age, were telling me what to do every single day. Adam here, my friend in the back, um, and always telling me what to do. And I, they said, you got to do another event. I said, I'm done for the day. No, you got to go to this event. I'm not going to go. And they said, you've got to go, Senator. So he goes to this event. And he said, and I came out against Social Security to get even with my staff. So. Whether that's true or not, who knows? McGovern, McGovern was um, what he did, what he did. But nobody who benefited from this knows he did it. One of the me, to me, one of the great marks of a, of a of a good one of the marks of a really good public official. He did the McGovern Dole program. The McGovern Dole provides hot meals, one hot meal a day, to millions of children in the developing world. And I've been to Haiti. Connie and I were in Haiti and, and went to one of those sites. And that was what George McGovern did. And, and he, he later, actually bef um, before he'd done that, but he had done other things in, in, in addressing world hunger, he met Pope John the 23rd. 
And John the 23rd said to McGovern, he said, um, when you meet your maker, George, you can say you fed the poor. And what, what more do you need in life than something being blessed by John the 23rd? As a Lutheran, I say this. So. Um, Bobby Kennedy, the, probably the reason I took the desk, but um, perhaps. But Bobby Kennedy, you know, Bobby Kennedy wasn't always Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy worked for McCarthy. You know those days. I, I, don't, I don't paper over any of that. Bobby Kennedy surely grew in his compassion and his understanding of the world after his brother's assassination. Um, he grew another time, and the story I tell came from dinner Connie and I had with uh, Marion Wright and Peter Edelman. Peter Edelman. And Marion Wright, Marion Wright, a young Yale Law School graduate, ran the the, um, the Head Start program in Mississippi in the 19th and mid 1960s. Um, Marion Wright didn't like the Kennedy family because John Kennedy's no nominees for judge, uh, for 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 federal judge, all had to be okayed by James Eastland, the, 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 the segregationist center of Mississippi. So all of his appointments, the, the, good, the good judges in civil rights in the South were Eisenhower appoint, appointees, not, not Kennedy appointees. So she didn't have much use for him. And she was asked by somebody, Bobby Senator Kennedy and his aide, Peter Edelman, were coming to see, coming to, to the Delta. And Marianne Wright welcomed him. She wasn't thrilled about it. She didn't really like them very much, she thought. Um, she ended up marrying one of them, but she didn't like them very much. And she said Kennedy sent all the cameras away, then went inside the shack into this really poor, this rundown shack in the Delta. And she said he picked up this baby. She said, this baby was so dirty, I didn't want to touch him. And she said his compassion and his empathy just was something she had never seen. And that was the Bobby Kennedy that, that we think of in 1968 and maybe before. Um, William Proxmire, who was the most eccentric of the eight, um, and that includes Glenn Taylor, who was even was pretty eccentric. But Proxmire ran for for governor in '52, lost. Next morning, he got up, he went to Plant Gates, handed out a card saying, "I know I lost, but I'll be back." Ran again in '54, got up the next morning, went to Plant Gates, handed out a card saying, "I'll be back." Went again in '56 when he expected to win, printed up two sets of cards. But again, handed out the card saying, I'm, I'm, thank you for voting for me. I, I didn't win. I'll be back. 1957, he planned to run for the Senate against McCarthy. And McCarthy, as you know, spiraled down in a, and there's some pretty descriptive language that some reporters used to, to, to um, sort of measure McCarthy in those days. Um, but um, uh, Proxmire won that special election. Then Proxmire had the good luck to run in the cycle the best cycle, perhaps, for a Democrat in American history, 58, 64, 70, 76, 82, all Democratic years. Proxmire got to the point where the only money he spent in a campaign, he was so popular, was to um, pay for postage to send checks back to people that sent him checks. And he was able to do that partly because he ran in good years, partly was becoming a Democratic state, partly because he was a good senator and he was um, chairman of the banking committee. and. Um, that's something I aspire to, like next year. Um, but but he also he also was a nonstop campaigner. He would Herb Cole, or actually Russ Feingold, told me he met Proxmire every every decade of his life. He met him in the 50s at school. He met him in the 60s outside Milwaukee County Stadium. He met him in the 70s in a restaurant. I mean, Proxmire was always out, returned home, and shook hands. Some of you in this in this group, I think, work for Herb Cole. And you will, you will know those stories of Proxmire. Um, he, uh, Herb tells the story, told me the story that when Easter, Herb's Jewish, and Herb was at Easter, at Easter Sunday, Herb was at a restaurant, I think in Racine, and Bill Proxmire walks in and was going table to table shaking hands saying happy Easter to people. I mean, he never stopped, and that's why he had that kind of life and that kind of, of success in, in, in elective office. Al Gore uh, was a progressive by, I'm not sure that a number of these senators would have called themselves liberals or progressives at the time, but I don't really care about that because I think they all were, they all contributed to a progressive history of our country. Al Gore um, was one of three Southern senators that refused to sign the Communist Manifesto, even though, even though presented with it and confronted by Strom Thurmond on the floor of the Senate with all the Southern press, no, all the Southern press alerted about it. And he said, hell no, when, when um, Strom Thurmond tried to get him to sign it. 
That's the good news in 64 against his son and daughter's wishes. Al Albert Gore voted against the Civil Rights Act in 64. But by 1970, Albert Gore probably was willing to lose because he took on Hainsworth and Carswell. He voted against both of them in an increasingly Republican state of Tennessee. Um, he was willing to do that, knowing the political risk. Nixon, Nixon really focused his Southern strategy against Gore and a few others and defeated him in 1970. Herbert Lehman, the son and uncle of the, of the Lehman brothers, uh, the, the founders of Lehman Brothers. Herbert Lehman was, was the son of one and the nephew of the other. He was the governor immediately succeeding uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and he, with an easier time in a legislature probably that was a little more malleable than the Congress, at least in, after the third or fourth year, uh, he pushed the little New Deal uh, through the New York Assembly, and he, was, um, he, was one of, he, he took on McCarthy. He fought for civil rights. Um, it wasn't always easy. He was, um, he, he was, a, he was a, a decent, honorable man, very philanthropic, and contributed much to this country. Um, the, most un the least known of these eight uh, was, was um, Glenn Taylor, the singing cowboy from Kuskia, Idaho. Glenn Taylor ran for office seven times and won once, 1944 for the Senate. Um, his wife was named Dora. And they were, they formed the Glendora Singers, Glenn and Dora Taylor. That's how he made his living, except when he was a toupee manufacturer and an iron worker and a number of other things. And Glendora, Dora's, Dora's, their son was Dora spelled backwards, A-Rod, like the baseball player. So I found, I, I'm not really this good on social media, but I found A-Rod Taylor and talked to him. He's a de retired dentist in California. And... Um, A-Rod a -Rod told me a story. As some of you know, Glenn Taylor's contribution to, Glenn Taylor, if, if you know who he is, which most don't include, my brother Charlie was the first person I asked out of the 25 people that actually knew who Glenn Taylor was. And I didn't know who he was when I got his desk. And, but Glenn Taylor was the running mate for Henry Wallace in 1948. And Henry Wallace, um, you know, Henry Wallace started off with a pretty big percentage. I mean, and just, just kept... It just kept dis dis disintegrating the, the votes he had, more or less. And, but but A-Rod, I'm not sorry, but, um, but Glenn Taylor, his wife, and A-Rod went to, went to um, Montgomery, Alabama to campaign, campaign for the ticket. And this story is the story A-Rod told me, and I, I've had it confirmed since, that A-Rod, that, that Glenn Taylor went in to speak to a segregated audience, went through the, the colored, the black entrance only, um, in to speak, the police arrested him, and Glenn Taylor spent the night in the Montgomery jail, in, in Bull Connor's jail in 1948. Bull Connor was already the city sheriff back then. Um, Theodore Francis Green, you know if you're from the Northeast, you've flown into TF Green Airport. Theodore Francis Green is the, is the victim, if you will, of the, of the LBJ photo when he's going like this. LBJ six, three or four, and, and um, TF Green, I believe, under five feet. T.F. Green was a Renaissance man. He spoke five languages. He was born into great privilege. Um, he, his family, I believe, were mill owners. I think that's where his wealth came from. And he was considered, when he became governor uh, and then senator, he was elected a freshman senator at the age of 65. But he had been governor before, and he remade the politics of the state when they took over the state legislature through a series, even with redistricting, a series of very smart moves and he was called by the mill owners a traitor to his class. So following in the, foot of his, the, the footsteps of his beloved FDR. Um, the, the, the last, the, the, fir the first or the last is, um, is Hugo Black. And I want to read some things in Hugo Black, and then I'll take some questions, of course. Um, a young, ambitious Hugo Black thought he had, a, had to choose between the Ku Klux Klan and the big mules. He chose the Klan. The big mules were the steel and coal interests, the utility executives, the corporate lawyers, the bankers, the wealthy planners, the railroad men. Most Alabamans, black or white, resented the big mules. Steelworkers, miners, railroad workers, unemployed, all watched the big mules feed at the trough while they could imagine no way out of their hard scrabble lies. They knew they were creating great wealth for their bosses. They were equally sure they were sharing in almost none of it. The future governor, Bib Graves, described the social and economic structure of 1920s Alabama this way. Little mules were straining and sweating 
to pull the heavy loaded hay, hay wagon up the road. Tied to the back of the wagon were two big mules, strolling along happily, contentedly munching the hay. Graves pledged to hitch the big mules to the wagon, force the big mules to shoulder a heavier portion of the tax burden, and give the little mules some relief. The Klan was a group of hooded terrorists, murderously anti-black, violently anti-immigrant, viciously anti-Catholic and anti-Semitic. At the peak of its powers in Alabama in the mid-20s, when black was elected to the Senate, the white-robed Klansmen spread terror throughout the state. Some estimated that half of Birmingham's registered voters belonged to the Klan. Klansmen saw themselves as protector of all things American. Shop windows advertised their owners' Klan membership with TWK trade with the Klansmen signs in their windows. James S. Still, Grand Dragon of the Realm of Alabama, boasted, we had the best people in the state. The Jefferson County Sheriff belonged, so did hundreds of preachers, as did prominent businesses, businessmen, and scores of politicians, and the future Senator and Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black. Black told a friend years later, I would have joined any group if it helped me get votes. Uh, you know what Black became? Black became FDR's favorite Southern senator. He renounced the Klan soon after his election. He became Roosevelt's favorite Southern senator. Um, he, with Senator Wagner, is responsible for collective bargaining, the 40-hour work week, uh, minimum wage, so much of what we, we look with appreciation on labor law that's made this country a much wealthier country with a much more a vibrant middle class. He went on to serve longer in the Supreme Court than almost anybody. His time was exceeded only by uh, Justice Douglas, 34 years in the court. And what completes that circle is after Brown v. Board of Education, and Black is believed to have played a major role in the unanimity on the court, not just voting himself, but, but encouraging others. Um, Right after that, Hugo Black was burned in effigy at the law school he graduated from in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Now I'll read one paragraph about Black. Black's early life is a cautionary tale for ambitious young public officials. A populist and a progressive from his earliest days, he had the courage to fight for the least privilege as a lawyer and as a judge. But as a young man, he let his ambition flip his progressive populism onto its ugly racist underbelly. Ambition kept him from understanding that real populism is never racist, never anti-Semitic, never pushes some people down to lift others up. Uh, I'll close and then take questions. I, 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 leave, I leave this book with a sense of optimism about the future. This is, this, is not, this is not the worst time in our country's history. We probably, we certainly have the worst president we've had in my lifetime. Maybe the worst president ever. I don't know a lot about James Buchanan, but I think the <laughs> world's the, the country's worst president probably ever. But it's not the worst time for our country. It's not, it's not McCarthy. It's not Vietnam. I mean, it's not, it's not the divisions in the 60s. It's not McCarthy. It's not World War II. It's not the Depression. It's not the Civil War. And I, um, as I said, I, I wrote this book as I wear this canary pin um, because I believe in the power of government to make people's lives better. Um, I don't predict this yet, but I'm starting to think this, that there is a real, real, real opportunity in 2020 um, to launch a new progressive era. Um, what we accomplished as a nation in the teens, in spite of a racist president, Woodrow Wilson, but accomplishments, all kinds of workers' compensation and direct election of senators in the Federal Reserve in the 30s uh, was an incredible time for our country, as you know, Social Security and all that came about with, with labor law reform and so much others and the so much else in the 60s, uh, the Wilderness Act, the Higher Education Act, Medicare, Medicaid, voting rights, civil rights, uh, the Equal Opportunity Act, which led to Head Start Pell Grants, all those kinds of things that came out of the 1960s, um, tells me that, that we're due and this time we will know what to do with it. So that's not a prediction, but it's something that, as Dr. King said, uh, the, 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 that progress doesn't roll in on the wheels of inevitability. Progress doesn't roll in on the wheels of inevitability. It's up to us to make it happen. And my commitment to you and to the people, my, the, my constituents in Ohio is to fight like hell to make that happen in 2020. I'll stop. So, Sherrod, we have two mics here okay. and people Go are lining it. up. Yeah.
And tell me your name if you want to. If I'm very interested in reading your book. And as I was browsing through it, I, I read what you wrote about RFK's about RFK's Ripple of Hope speech in Johannesburg, South Africa, and about how and about how it was hard for him, and about how it was difficult for him to get a visa, and uh, and about how it was difficult for him to get a visa, and also about um, and also about the profound inspiration that many received from his visit. Um, I was wondering if you would be able to talk a little bit about that. What would you, what would you say? Would you say there were any particularly interesting things that you learned? In the course of your research about RFK's visit to South Africa yeah. in June of 1966. Thank you. He, um, I, I thank you for that question, Nathan. And I, I, I knew about his speech, the Ripples of Hope speech. We have all, almost any Democrat in politics has quoted that speech over the years. Some of us ad nauseum. Um, but um, I, I didn't know some of the background. I didn't know the part about the visa. I didn't know um, how he started off that speech, talking, comparing South Africa to the U.S. Um, he how he went in front of pretty hostile audiences. That I don't think that was the first time Kennedy did that. But in his '68 uh, campaign, he would often go in front of hostile audiences and challenge them. Um, and I, 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 he did that, if not the first time, certainly one of the first times in South Africa. And I think he saw that that was his mission that that he could come in and he had the standing to be able to do that. Um, he spoke the day after the, the picture. I have one page of pictures for each of the eight. The picture I chose, uh, two pictures of Kennedy. One of them is when he um, spoke at the Cleveland City Club. He spoke the day after the King assassination. He canceled everything else that he had on his schedule and spoke there that day and talked about gun violence. And the, the rule at the City Club, which is about, a, I think it's 106 years old now. It's one of the most prestigious places to speak in the country. Uh, is that you have to take questions after you speak. Nobody, presidents, all the presidents have been there. Everybody has to take questions. Kennedy, only time ever, began to cry after his speech, at the end of his speech, and walked off the stage and didn't take questions. So, um, But uh, the, the, the speech he gave there, the speech he gave in Indianapolis the night before, um, with John Lewis in the crowd, the speech he gave at the, in South Africa were among America's finest, I think. Nathan, thank you. I think this is the worst time I've ever seen, and I'm older than you. Uh, I was born in the Truman administration. Um, I've never seen anything like this. Um, when I was growing up, the unions were the backbone of the Democratic Party, and we have lost them. They are now pretty much the backbone of the Trump people. Um, why did we lose them, and how can we get them back? Well, we um, I, I don't agree with that assumption entirely. I First of all, the... The problem is there aren't enough union members. There, right. The problem is the decline of unionism, and that's that's a problem for the Democrats, and it's a problem for standard of living for far, far, far too many workers. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I like all of our candidates running for president. I like I don't, not quite all of them. I like almost all of them. Uh, I'm not going to mention names either way, positive or negative tonight, so don't even try. Um, but but I, I wish they would talk more to workers and about work, about the dignity of work. And when you think about dignity of work, it's not it's not it's not just white guys white guys that are firefighters. It's right. it's hotel workers. It's people that prepare food. It's people that work in this bookstore. Um, it's people that that are working construction and people right. that are cleaning hotel rooms and um, union and non-union. And if if we would and then but elections are always about contrast. And we would point out that. While, while we're the party of workers, that Trump has betrayed workers. He's betrayed workers in the Midwest as he's betrayed our allies in the Middle East. And he is, he's fought the overtime rule. He's, he's re pulled back the overtime rule, costing literally 40,000 Ohioans several thousand dollars each. He won't raise the minimum wage. He puts people on the courts that put their thumb on the scale of justice for corporations over, for over sure. workers, all these things. We've got to take it to him. And I, I, I have one story in here that, that sort of illustrates that. Um, I, I don't. I don't ever. Um, I, I'm. I'm. I'm never going to compromise on civil rights. I'm never going to compromise on women's rights, or. Or I'm never going to give in to the NRA. But I get. I don't. I don't do really, really well in rural areas and small towns. But I get enough votes, and I get enough votes because I talk to them 
at their work at, at their work sites not not literally but not mm-hmm. not but figuratively sometimes literally that that we've got to talk to them about their work about their kids education about their health care about how Trump's trying to take away their consumer protections pre-existing condition and one real quick story in here I was at a Ford plant during the Gore Bush race in 2000 I was in the cafeteria just sitting having coffee with seven or eight UAW members and all of them were voting for Gore except one and I said, why are you voting for Bush? And he said, because Gore wants to take my guns. And the guy next to me pointed to me and he said, Sherrod's got the same position on guns Gore does. And he said, yeah, but Sherrod fights, fights for me at work. And that's, that's what we need to do. And it means talking about the dignity of work and honoring work and respecting work. And we, we didn't, we didn't, we don't, the union vote was about 50-50 last time. Better in some states than others. So we've not lost. We've lost too many of them, but we can get them back. Particularly when you point out Trump's betrayal. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Senator Brown, thank you for writing the book. A few things. One, the influence you step forward. Oh, okay. That's better. Okay. Thank you for writing the book. The influence that Colonel Glenn and Senator Metzbaum had on your career. And the third thing is that I'm a retired union employee from the railroad. I want more Amtrak. I'd love to be able to take a train from Cleveland to see your Cincinnati Reds, but no such thing exists. Uh, The thing is, the party needs more direction and more discipline, and it might mean a change of the chair of the party because he's been missing in action. And... Finally, he's never going to be president. He's not going to be president yet. But Tim Ryan has to get back in the fight so it will become more visible because the next vice president of the United States on the Democratic ticket is someone I'm speaking to now or Representative Ryan. Well, thank you for that. First of all, it's the decision of the presidential candidate. Second, uh, my seat, if I were to be elected to any other office, higher office, um, my seat would go to a Republican governor to appoint. And that's pretty troubling for me, and it makes me a lot less interested. Uh, Tim Ryan, we've tried to get Tim to run for governor or Senate uh, in the past, um, so I'll just leave it at that. Connie and I were dry riding, riding Amtrak today. We did Colbert last night. We came, got up at 7 this morning, or took a train at 7. And as we were arriving, we said, my God, I wish we had high-speed rail in Ohio. Um, what, what, what that would mean for our country would, would be so much. Metzenbaum and Glenn, um, I knew John, Connie and I get, got to be actual real friends with John and Annie in the last 10 years of his life. And we just love the man. He's such an honorable, decent man. I have his office. My first, after my first two years, I moved into the Barack Obama office for eight years. I now have John Glenn's office in the, in the cap, in the Hart building. And we just think the world of him. Metzenbaum was a very effective senator. Metzenbaum showed... You could be progressive, you could be pro-labor, you could be outspoken, and you could win. And Metzenbaum, I remember the slogan he used was, Howard Metzenbaum, he's on our side. And I remember saying to my pollster and and media person in 06, um, I want to have that, I want to use that slogan, Sherrod Brownie's on our side. She said, you haven't earned it yet. (laughs) So I took that for, and I've been working to try to earn it, so. Yeah, hi. Hello. I'm going to address you not so much as yourself, but more as a symbol. And what I'm concerned about is, um, as good as it is to be bringing out these personalities and, you know, sort of reflecting on, on the past and all that, I don't get the sense. I mean, if you're a senator and the situation that this world in this country is in right now and I don't see you presenting an actual series of problems and possible solutions, where we're going to go. And again, I address more that you're a senator than you personally. So my question is, is the government itself, the senators, uh, everybody, aware of how serious and how difficult the situation is now for our country and for the world. I, I don't get that. Well, okay, fair enough. I, uh, I think most, many of us are. 
Uh, the purpose of tonight was to talk about how progressives um, have had such victories, how progressive eras have moved our country forward. Uh, progressives don't win, frankly, very often. But when we do, we win really big. And we win really big, meaning we pass Medicare, we pass Social Security, we pass civil rights. We then play defense because the right wing comes back with fury. Um, Emerson talked about history is a fight between the innovators and the conservators. The conservators, today's conservatives, want to hold on to their wealth and privilege and will do anything they, to keep it. It's up to us to challenge that. If we win in 2020, I've, got, I've, I've already asked my Senate Banking Committee staff, and this committee is called Banking, Housing, and Urban, Affair, Urban Affairs. Um, Republicans have forgotten the housing and urban affairs part. Um, housing is going to be in capital letters. Um, and we're already preparing ideas if we take over in 2020. So I, I think you'll find that throughout. Um, our goal is to, is to prepare for that and at the same time make sure that it happens. So I, 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 I take the admonition and the, and the, um, the challenge. Uh, I take it genuinely. Um, we have a lot of work to do. Uh, not everybody looks at the world the way I do. I understand that. But um, there are a lot of us. There's gonna be, we're we're going to address climate change. We're going to make... I, when I was in New Hampshire in Laconia, I met a woman roughly my age who's worked in child care for 40 years, and she said, you know, child care needs to be seen as a public good. Imagine if this country, if we, if we coming out of the box in 2020, you know, in terms of family leave, in terms of sick days, in terms of vacation, in terms of parental leave, all these kinds, I mean, there's so many things we can do, and we stored them up, and we're ready, and I think you'll see that in 2020. Thank you. So I want to be positive about 2020 as well, um, but I'm concerned about the 75 days between the election and January 20th. Do you, if Mr. Trump loses, do you think there will be a peaceful transfer of power on January 20th? Um, I've heard people talk about that. I've thought about that. I don't know. Um, I would, this might be a reach, I would actually expect my Republican colleagues to do the right thing at that point. Um, that seems like, seems like a reach for their cowardly behavior in the last three years from the 16 campaign to now. Um, I think that, I, I don't know, I think if Trump, if Hillary had actually become president, um, I think Trump would have continued to run against her and try to try to sabotage everything, including talking about the vote count and the electric, everything he would do. Um, I think it's a perilous time, but I, I'm optimistic enough, even about my Republican colleagues who have shown less than a spine so far, that if this election, if it comes out the way I think it will, and it's decisive, that, um, that he will be shown the door and forced to the door if necessary. Just a heads up, we have three more people on this side, and then there are two people behind okay. me. Uh, so we'll just have those last okay. five questions. Okay. Sure. Hi. Hi. Just want to say, huge fan. I worked on your campaign when I was in college. Um, in college where? Uh, Ohio Wesleyan. All right. Cool. Um, I'm also from Wisconsin, so the home of great political progressives. And uh, Ohio and Wisconsin have very slim, similar political climates, but you're the only Democrat in Ohio that's won statewide in several years. Why do you think you're the one who wins and breaks through? Um, we've not had a good enough farm system in Ohio, in part. In part, um, Ohio's, Ohio's getting harder. Um, our demographic mix hasn't changed much. I mean, you can see what's happened in Virginia, mm -hmm. especially some of you live in Virginia, and this state is, is no longer even a competitive state, hardly. I mean, I hope today, tonight proves it again. Um, and North Carolina's next, and Georgia, and maybe even Texas, and South Carolina's got some good signs and all that. Arizona, Colorado's almost already there, Arizona, Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin are a little easier than Ohio. I think you've got to have, you've got to have a message of talking to workers in their workplace, as I said earlier. Um, I, um, I, you know, Ohio's going to be a competitive state in 2018, 2020. It's harder than Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, but it's going to be. The other, the one piece of good news in Ohio that I've seen is um, my daughter is part of this. My daughter is a city council member um, on the ballot again this year for a second term right now, and 
Um, as soon as um, I leave here, I'm going to be talking to her, expecting the votes to come in around that time. And she, um, she and a number of other, mostly women, mostly under 45, almost all under 45, a number of people of color, men and women, are building this farm team because the local, local governments where the political power on our side is, um, and I expect that to pay off. We have some really good young female candidates, um, in addition to my daughter, but I mean, we have a number of people, and it makes me optimistic for building this party in the future. Thank you. Thanks. And your senator is one of the best, and I don't mean Ron Johnson. <laughs> yeah. I love Tammy Baldwin. Sorry. Hi there. Um, my name is Naomi. I just recently moved to D.C. Um, but I was just wondering what about this political climate um, keeps you up at night and what about it makes you hopeful? Um, what keeps me up at night is, is um, well, <laughs> lots of things. Um, I was going to make I never mind. Um, uh, just just the, 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 the fear that we don't beat Trump. I think we will but just all the things that can happen. Uh, we're all concerned about what this president does next. I still can't believe my colleagues that have shown no courage in standing up to him. Um, and more long-term, I, I fear what's happening with climate change, and, and we can't wait much longer. And I, I met with about 10 CEOs today, all of whom, some from energy companies even, who are really pushing hard on doing the right thing on climate. Um, some of them, the, 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 not in the meeting, but some energy companies are acting like they're doing more than they are. But um, I, I worry about that for your generation. But I also worry about the, the thing that got me into politics, civil rights and human rights, and, and how, how much we have lost with Trump. But I really do believe we, we begin to gain it back in January of 2021. Thanks. Hi, my name is Joe. I'm from Miller City, Ohio. It's population 136 in Putnam <laughs> County. Don't know if you know where that is. Um, but my question is, I have only been a liberal coastal elite for about seven years now. Um, but before that, I... Were you a liberal in Miller City, too? No, I was not. Okay. Um, Harder to be there than yes, Washington. Yeah. Yes, it is. But I was shocked about the 2016 election. And I'm very close to my family and very much in touch with them. And even I had completely lost touch with what was going on in rural areas. Um, but your name is one that is not hated in my family. Um, and I'm curious. As That's to a ringing endorsement. <laughs> yes. Trust me. Trust we don't me, it hate is. you. Trust me, it is. When it comes to Democrats, it is. Um, but my question is, how do you stay in touch with concerns of people in rural areas like that? Because I, I mean, I was only here for three years, and I completely lost touch. And I'm wondering how you, a U.S. senator who has a lot more going on, can stay in touch with uh, those voters. Well, I go home every weekend to Cleveland, where Connie, Connie and I live. That's that helps. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not. I, I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I'm not beloved in everywhere in the state. I'm not even beloved. Period. I mean, I won by seven points. So, um, but I and I didn't do particularly well in even the place I grew up. We, 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 I won 88 counties in Ohio. I won 16 of them. I won the big industrial. I won the big metro counties. I won the Lake Erie. Three counties in Lake Erie. Um, partly, as my brother has a theory that I think has got some semblance, some, some some credence to it, that um, tourist counties along Lake Erie is a, are different kinds of small counties. And then I won the three university counties, one where my wife teaches, Kent State, and Bowling Green, and, and Ohio University. Uh, we're, we're doing badly in smaller towns, but I'm on the Veterans Committee, I'm on the Ag Committee, I do a lot in those communities, but it doesn't really seem to translate into votes. But it's it's listening and talking. I, I don't do big town halls. I, I rarely speak to a group in Ohio like this in this kind of a format. I, I, I do roundtables of 15 or 20 people, and I listen to them, and I get ideas. And that's what I bring back to, to Washington and, and work on. It's also what you do outside of the, the legislative part of my job. Um, I learned this a long time ago. I, I, um, I know that in small, small towns, their rural hospitals are, are in real financial trouble. If, if Trump wins the lawsuit on ACA, rural hospitals will go out of business. I, I organize at those rural hospitals. I talk to them about what it means and listen to them. Um, and I, I think that absolutely matters. Um, and, and I also learned, there's, a, there's an Abraham Lincoln quote that I love, that he, um, his staff wanted him to stay in the White House and win the war and free the slaves and preserve the union. He said, no, I got to go out and get my public opinion baths. 
And I, I look at politics like that, that I go out and listen to people, and it's a lot more interesting than talking, frankly. I learn stuff, and I learn about, but I try to talk to people in their workplace, whether they're a farmer, whether they're a shopkeeper, whether they're a factory worker, and um, I think that helps. I, again, I don't, I don't win places like Miller City, um, although I hear they don't hate me, they just don't yes. vote for me. Yeah. Yes. And that's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> Susie, how are you? I'm good. Um, and you don't have to worry about my family in Ohio voting for you, as you know. Um, that's because they don't live in Miller City. They live in right. Shaker Heights. No, 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 no. Or the environs of Shaker Heights. And never have lived in Shaker Heights. Okay, but close enough. Cleveland Heights. Beachwood, no. Cleveland Heights, yeah. Okay. 70, 80% um, areas, yeah. Oh, we got it, we got it. Um, I have two things. One is, listening to you today, um, you said that Robert Kennedy, that if, it, that you picked the, the desk probably because of Robert Kennedy. Now you've written the book. Would that still be your choice? So that's my question. And then my comment, um, the night you were sworn in as a senator, I said how proud I was of you for taking Howard Metzenbaum's seat mm -hmm. because I worked for Howard Metzenbaum. Yeah. And um, here it is 19 years later, and I'm still very proud of you and probably even more proud of you and the work that you've done. And I just want to congratulate you, you. And I want to wish you a happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Not today, two days. Yeah. Four days away, but thank you. You know that. Okay. So the question, who would, who would you pick now? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know what the configuration other desks are, it, configuration is in other desks. Um, I, and I don't think, yeah, I don't know. These are, the, these are not the most progressive eight senators. There are. You know, I, uh, Russ, no, I mean of, 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 the, of this desk, so, since you've just done all this research. Oh, who would I pick eight. is sort of the one I'd most like to be like? Um, I guess I start with there are no giants in the Senate. I used to think there was when I was 15 or 20. Uh, they're all human beings. They're all flawed. Every one of these eight is pretty flawed. Um, McGovern had a humility that was unusual in politics. Uh, Glenn Taylor had a courage that was pretty unusual. He took out of Mississippi the worst human being maybe in the 20th century in the Senate, Theodore Bilbo from Mississippi. He was unseated. He was not. He was, he was refused his seat because Glenn Taylor stood up and stopped it. Um, Hugo Black had the best journey, the furthest journey from where we started. So I guess I would take the easy way out and pick parts of each of them. Sorry. <laughs> Senator Brown, I'm, I'm not going to ask you about the sad and depressed state of the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> I'm already ready for baseball season, man, spring training. <laughs> but I happen to be a person who believes that the only issue as to who should be the uh, Democratic nominee for president is the person who's best able to beat Donald Trump. And I happen to think that the person in this country most likely to be able to beat Donald Trump is looking at me right now. <laughs> And I would ask you, and maybe implore you, <laughs> and I think there's a lot of people in this room who would agree with me, we cannot afford to lose this election, even if it means giving up a Senate seat in Ohio. The country needs to beat Donald Trump. The world needs to beat Donald Trump. Please, please think about running for president oh, if it's you. not too late. Thanks. I, I um... Thank you for saying that. Con Connie, and I, Connie and I went to the four early states, uh, spent two months thinking seriously about it. In the end, you've got, to, you've got to really, really, really want to be president. And I didn't have that dream. I mean, anybody that's known me, a number of people in this room I've known for 25 years, and I've never had that great desire to do it. I really appreciate it. I don't think you can. I mean, one of, the, one of the reasons I went back to the Miller City question, um, one of the reasons I've won in the past, I think, is I, I have a joy in this. I, I think what, what I, I've, I've always loved Hubert Humphrey because of the term happy warrior. And I mean, I understood why in 68 people were unhappy with Johnson and all that. And I'd love if Humphrey had my desk because I would love to have written about him. Um, but um, I think one of the most important things is people expect their elected officials to be optimistic and to bring some joy to the campaign and to the job. I just don't think I could have summoned up the joy to be the right kind of candidate. I, I, um, I, I'm reminded of a, um, you know, and most of my colleagues that run, and no, no disrespect to anybody doing it, they're in the arena, I'm not. 
Um, but they've had an, some of them have planned to run for president for 10 or 20 years. And that's okay. I mean, I, I, plenty of people said to me when, well, when I say I don't really want to be president, and they'll say that's why you should run. Well, that's not the way the system works. It is peculiar. But uh, there, was a, there was a Vermont senator 40 or 50 years ago that said the only cure in the, for the presidential virus in the U.S. Senate is embalming fluid. And, you know, far, I, I, just, I just don't want to be that. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I see that. I, I, don't, I, I do think, but I close with, I, and the answer is, I do think that we can, I, I, I do think we're going to beat Trump. I don't know who the best candidate is. I don't even know, I, I literally don't know who I'm, whom I'm going to vote for at this point. That's why you have a long season and you figure out, I think we'll know more by January, February, or March who the best candidate is to beat Trump. But I appreciate that. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.